Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. Cancer may leave your body, but it never leaves your life. It's sort of always a part of who you are going forward. People are craving an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. If you set goals that seem unachievable, you will go so much further in life. Welcome to One Goal, a storytelling podcast from Pelotonia. We're a passionate community dedicated to funding innovative cancer research. I'm your host and Chief Operating Officer of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Pelotonia is powered by an unstoppable community, and it's through research we will see an end to cancer. We want to thank our major funding partners for making all of this possible. The American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the Brands Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. When it comes to a challenge, there are two paths one can take. Either let it determine your attitude and future, or rise above it and use that negative situation as fuel for a positive tomorrow. For Doug Ullman, his challenge came in the way of three cancer diagnoses. While this could have defined him, the circumstances and community surrounding Doug helped him discover a selfless passion for seeing an end to cancer. So let's get to know Pelotonia's CEO in this episode titled, Opportunities for Good. So let's talk about sort of growing up, Doug Ullman, Maryland, the community you grew up in, and because that ultimately influenced sort of a lot of what you chose to do as an adult and how you think about the world, really. Yeah, so I was fortunate to grow up in the first planned city in America. So it's called Columbia, Maryland, and it's right between Baltimore and Washington. Columbia is now almost 60 years old. Okay. So um, He's very ahead of his time. Yeah, very ahead of his time and very much just post-civil rights um, sort of era. As a kid, you, you just think where you grew up is normal. When I got to college, I realized that most people came from an environment where they were surrounded by people like themselves. So uh, you ended up going away to college. You went to Brown, uh, Brown University, um, and played soccer. What ended up making you choose there? So when I was looking at colleges, I remember my dad and my mom saying to me one night, you should go to college wherever you will feel the best and the most comfortable if you break your leg and never play soccer again. So essentially what they were saying is like, go to the best possible school and use soccer to get there, Yeah, you know, in a way. Um, little did they know I would be diagnosed with cancer and soccer would become less important uh, just literally a, a year later. So let's fast forward to that year and um, how your, you know, the start of your cancer journey ultimately started to unfold. Yeah, so interestingly, I had a very uh, humbling experience my freshman year of college. 
because I was not good enough to play a lot. You get to college and you realize you're playing with people three and four years older than you who are stronger than you, they're faster than you, they yeah. have more experience than you. And, and so it was humbling. And so when I left for the summer after my freshman year, the goal was to train all summer to be able to play. And so that's what I did. And I was in the best shape of my life and um, ended up going on a, a run with my brother one night. And so we went for a run and I got back and I was wheezing. And after about two hours, my parents said, you know, you, you should go to the emergency room. And I thought, I don't need to go to the emergency room. I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm fit. And finally, about an hour later, we went. It was like probably 11 o'clock at night. And the doctor on call said, um, you're fine. It's just allergies, humidity. It's just something in the air. And he said, you'll be fine in the morning. And as we were leaving, he said, but before you leave, let's do a chest X-ray. And so they did the X-ray. He looked at it and he said, no problem. So I went home and the next morning I woke up and I was completely fine. And I was coaching at a soccer camp and I went to camp. It was like nine to two or something. And, and again, no issues at two o'clock came home and there was a, a light on our answering machine that was blinking. And the message was from our family doctor. And he said, the hospital notified me that you were in last night because I'm listed as your doctor and your record. And I was at the hospital visiting another patient. So I looked at your chest x-ray and you need to have a scan immediately. And what he saw was a shadow on the, on the x-ray behind my heart. So I had a scan that afternoon and all I remember was that there was a glass window in the corner of the, of the room. And as I was sliding out of the sort of CT machine, my mom was standing over the technician's shoulder and the technician was pointing at the screen. And so it turned out that, that they found this mass that was growing behind my heart in my rib cage. They kept calling it a growth. They didn't say it was a tumor. They didn't say it was cancer. They actually said the chances of this being cancer are 2%. So at that stage, it wasn't cancer. It wasn't likely to be cancer. And the doctor said, I was supposed to go back to school the week later, a week later for preseason soccer. And he said, you should go back and you should play. And when you come home for winter break, we'll take it out. So anyway, I had surgery a week later. They took out part of my rib cage uh, that was attached to the tumor. And it was just a weird experience because I felt totally healthy. And yet they were telling me they needed to do all these things surgically, but I didn't feel sick. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of hard. similar to, as we've talked about my experience yeah. where I had no pain, I had no other health issues and and you're being told you have cancer and you're having surgery and you actually feel worse coming out of the surgery. Totally. Because your body just went through the trauma of surgery than you did going into it. And it's totally. hard to reconcile. Absolutely. And I, and I think I took for granted at that time that I had just trained all summer, like after being humbled the year before and worked so hard. And then to have it sort of taken away in that moment yeah. was, was challenging. So you have surgery and then as anyone who's been through any semblance of a similar experience, the waiting game of a pathology report and, and all of that stuff, they've got to send it away. And so you're looking at your, your clock for, for days on end and, and sometimes weeks on end until you get that report. At that point, after the surgery, did they give you any indication that it 
would be a better than 2% chance of cancer? I, I came out of surgery and they said it will take five to seven days for the pathologist to do an analysis. And so then, you know, you get to day five and you're like, did they call? Nope. Day six. Nope. Day seven. Nope. Day eight. So then we started calling and started hearing things like, oh, it was inconclusive. We need to send it to some experts in other cities. And so it was just a frustrating waiting game. And, um, and, and as every day went by, you think it's going to be bad news because if it were normal, they'd have already yeah, told you. give you a quick no and be on right. your way. Right. So eventually you get the diagnosis. And so you were diagnosed with not a very common form of cancer. It was the day before I was scheduled to go back to college. Oh, wow. And my parents and I drove to this appointment in Baltimore. And the goal of that visit with the physician was he's going to tell you whether you can go back to school tomorrow. We sat down and he opened what looked like a massive medical textbook. And he said, well, it's been confirmed. You have chondrosarcoma. As much as I think subconsciously I thought that was what we were going to hear or that we were going to hear it was cancer, I didn't expect to hear it that day. And I wasn't like prepared to hear it at that moment because I was excited to go back to school. Did you go back to school the next day or no? I did. You did? Yeah. Um, we drove to Rhode Island and uh, my coach sat me down and said, when are you going to play again? And I was like, Mike, you're crazy. Like, I'm not playing this season. And he was like, no, no, no. He's like, you're going to jog in four weeks and in six weeks you're going to scrimmage and in eight weeks you're going to. And I thought he was crazy. And he, he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, you're going to put on your uniform every day for practice and you're going to come to practice every day. And it was hard, but psychologically it was the best thing ever because yeah. otherwise I would have sat in my dorm room and just yeah. What was the biggest lesson sort of you took from that? I think the lesson was if you set goals that seem unachievable, you will go so much further in life. I ended up playing soccer on the, you know, in the stadium at Brown in October of that year, which was crazy. Yeah. And the next day I woke up and I called my coach and I said, I'm done for the year. I had exhausted every ounce of energy to get back and like I was done. But he was like, you did it. Had he not pushed me to set a goal that I thought was crazy, I never would have gotten there. Yeah. So this was sophomore year, fall sophomore year. Yep. Um, what did you then do with that experience? I mean, just knowing you and everybody, I think at this point knows you didn't sort of uh, leave your cancer experience behind uh, and go do other things. And so like what sort of series of events did that kick off for you to, or motivate you to go pursue? There was one aspect of my life that was missing, which was I couldn't find other young adults with cancer to talk to. And I think I just wanted to have that experience. And so when soccer started to become less of a time commitment or less important mentally, I was looking for something to fill that gap. At that same moment, I, I started to like call around and ask other organizations, like, what do you offer for young adults? And most of them said, well, we don't. And that just didn't sit well. And so I just decided that we should do something about it. We should start an organization to help other young adults. And I was entirely naive, didn't know what it would be or how it would work. 
and just started talking to people about it and asking for help. And everybody wanted to help. And that, you know, just started a journey in the nonprofit cancer community. So the, your uh, Crondo sarcoma was sort of your first bout with, with hearing the words cancer, but it wasn't your last. And so, and, and I think if I remember correctly, it happened pretty quickly, sort of soon thereafter, you had sort of another diagnosis and walk us through that. And, you know, you sort of went the peaks and valleys of uh, the valley of hearing you had cancer to, you know, the peak of, of playing in that soccer game again. And sort of all the way back down. Yeah, so um, when I went home for winter break after that fall, our family decided to start, you know, what at that time was called the the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults. And and it like consumed every hour, like meeting with people and lawyers and people who knew fundraising and family friends. And then I went back to school in the spring and came home for spring break. And when I was home for spring break, I went in for like a full checkup. And I was at Johns Hopkins at the time. And um, the dermatologist said, you know, we're going to remove some moles from your body and, um, which was, you know, not abnormal. And I forgot about it. And I went back to school and just as I was walking out of my dorm room, the phone rings and it's my dermatologist from Johns Hopkins. And she says, I've got some news for you. She says, the spot we took off of your chest is melanoma. And so I remember walking to practice that night and my two closest friends, Kumi and Chris, I had to tell them. And then I had to tell my coach. And then I, you know, it's just like, it was just deja vu all over mm-hmm. again. And um, so that was the, the second diagnosis. And then a few months later in early June of that year, uh, I was diagnosed again with uh, a, a separate melanoma uh, diagnosis, this time more invasive. Um, and so it's, you know, it was a long 10 months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that winter, you and your family had started the the Almond sort of, what was it, the Almond Fund for Young Adults? Mm-hmm. Um, how long did that take to get sort of up and running to where it was public and knowing this was not to, uh, not to date it? Too much, but it was pre the boom of the internet, yeah. um, or or maybe it was during sort of the boom of the internet. But what were you starting to do? Like, did you just start by doing a small event, and you know, then do a second, slightly bigger event? And totally, how did it we go? did exactly what every other family does, and so many people associated with Peloton to do. Yeah, you start an event, and we did a dinner. The dinner was actually the first dinner and auction was essentially a week after my third diagnosis. The second event was we um, decided to have a college soccer all-star game. So we invited all of the best players from around the country and we got sponsors and we brought them all to Maryland and we had a game and it was incredible. So during your time at Brown, this is one of those, uh, you know, I either call it a Columbus story or, or it's a Doug Ullman story, but you know, one of the founders of Palatania, you know, and Gordon Gee, happened to be the president, was it the president position or a similar position yep. at Brown, right? And you developed a relationship with him then. Yeah, Gordon is is and continues to be remarkable and, and a huge influence on my life. Um, he, he actually, when we started the Ullman Cancer Fund, he joined the board um, oh, wow. and he was on the initial board uh, and he continues to be a great, great friend. So you were diagnosed 
with cancer three times in a 10 month span. And so, you know, each time, you know, the first time, you know, each day you're getting farther and farther away from the diagnosis and then you got diagnosed a second time and, and then a subsequent time and, and sort of what was that like? And have you ever had sort of the finality of feeling like you're truly past it? Unfortunately, the way that melanoma works is when you've had one episode, you're more likely to have a second. And when you've had a second, you're more likely to have a third. And so, and I don't say this as a pessimist because I'm not, I probably will have another melanoma at some point, but that's why I get screened all the time. And that's why I go every six months. And um, that's not without nerves for sure. And I think that's normal. Um, you know, years ago we did lots of research and if you ask patients and survivors, what are the two hardest phases of the journey? What they will repeatedly and overwhelmingly say is that the number one hardest phase is from diagnosis to the start of treatment because you're searching for second opinions. You're searching for answers. There's why me you're going through this whole roller coaster. And the second most challenging time is from the point when they say, you're good, go back to your normal life. And you're like, but my life is not normal anymore. Like it's changed. You live with that for a long time and maybe even forever. Um, there's There's a line we used to use all the time that said cancer may leave your body, but it never leaves your life. And it's sort of always a part of who you are going forward. So let's talk about sort of finishing finishing college what happened what did you start thinking you would pursue obviously you started this family foundation that um you know you guys raised a lot of money really quickly and so that was a path that that you could pursue and um how did you start thinking about that how did everything start changing for you and and really at the end of of your college term start coming into reality i you know, got this outreach from Lance Armstrong and the opportunity to go work with him and the team that he had put together. And that also was transformational because it gave me this unbelievable career opportunity, but it also gave the Omen Foundation an opportunity to develop and grow in ways that I probably would never have taken it. You were one of the first four or five employees of, yep. of the foundation. This was year was 2000 2001 this is early 2001 early 2001 so um so you know lance's cycling career was sort of in full swing at that point and then he had started the foundation and then over really that decade you know the 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 aughts the 2000s livestrong went from one employee to five to 50 to 100 to 125 and and you got to really go along for the ride and ultimately lead the organization. What was that like, knowing your background as a survivor, as you know, someone who, who deeply cared about the mission and the idea of survivorship and you know, being young and all of those different things that interplay into that? What was that like for you? Just as a survivor, to be around a community of survivors mm-hmm. was powerful. And... You know, the other reason it was a dream opportunity was that my role initially was not focused on fundraising. It was focused on how do you figure out the best ways to spend the money to help people. So develop programs that don't exist and look at where the gaps are. And, you know, at that point, because of Lance's visibility and his stature, 
we could partner with anybody, we could collaborate with anybody. There were tons of opportunities coming our way and it really bred this notion that anything's possible. The, uh, I think it's a famous story. It's been written about uh, a little bit, but the, the story of sort of the wristbands coming to life and um, I won't do it justice or preview it, but it wasn't, wasn't the most popular idea, uh, you know, initially at the table and describe that sort of being in the room, you know, going through that process of, is this a good idea or not? Fast forward to it raised a lot, a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Nike was an incredible partner of the foundation. And when Lance was about to go to pursue his sixth tour de France win, which would have set the record, they said, we want to do something to commemorate this amazing feat. Should he win? And they said, we want to create this wristband and we're going to make 5 million of them and we're going to donate another million dollars. And if we sell all 5 million for a dollar, we'll have raised $6 million in honor of a sixth win. Like that was the concept. And they said, we're going to put on this little yellow wristband, we're going to put Carpe Diem because that was Lance's personal mantra that he talked about a lot and used for motivation. And at the time... In 2000, and this was late 2003, early 2004, Nike had made a few, three or four colored wristbands for NBA basketball players. And the NBA basketball players would snap them against their wrist when they were on defense to motivate themselves. And it was like the old thing when basketball players used to slap the floor with their hands to like get ready for defense. Yeah. They would, and they were called baller bands. And so they said, we're going to take these baller bands, we're going to make a yellow one. We're going to put Carpe Diem on them. We're going to sell five million, give you a million. You're going to raise six million. And so some of us didn't, some people didn't think it was a good idea because they weren't sure they would sell. Others, myself included, weren't sure it was a good idea because I didn't think I would wear it myself. So it was just a foreign concept. And they, they went back to Oregon after presenting and, and they called us a few weeks later and they said, actually, we, we were on your website and we see that you have a program that you named Livestrong. And it was a resource center. And they said, what if we put Livestrong on the wristband? And so we liked that better, but we were still hesitant that they would sell 5 million of them, et cetera. And I never forget somebody in the office in that meeting said, what are we going to do with the other 4.9 million that we don't sell? The day they launched, at the time Lance was dating Cheryl Crow, Cheryl Crow was on the Today Show playing the guitar and wearing one. Wearing one, yeah. You know, you then had the Tour de France, where every rider wore one, no matter what team they were on. You then had, literally two weeks later, the Olympic Games in Athens. And Nike put them in every athlete's bag that was Nike athlete. And then that fall, you had a presidential election. And you had John Kerry running against George Bush. And John Kerry was a cancer survivor, and George Bush had lost his sister to cancer at an early age. And every newspaper and every day you saw these candidates waving with the yellow wristband on. And it's the same reason why Pelotonia has been so successful is that people are craving an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And for a dollar, you could wear a wristband and you could feel like you were a part of a community that cared about this cause and you could share your story. And that has proven over time to be so powerful for so many One of the things I always found fascinating about you ultimately coming to lead Pelotonia is that you had been here before and you had um, 
you've been part of, you know, negotiating contracts for Lance to come and, and participate in the first ride and, uh, which is such, it makes things seem like such a small world, but I'm, I'm curious as, as you, you came to that first event and then you watched Pelotonia from afar go from 4 million to 8 million to 12 million to 20 million. And, you know, I think really establish ourselves as an organization on the map, uh, in the cancer fundraising world and what your perspective as a complete outsider was living in Texas, seeing this happen in Columbus, Ohio. There was just a feel there was a, you could sense that people were energized and excited and I, I didn't appreciate all of the nuances of the model at the time and, and why it had worked so well. But after watching it year two, year three, year four, and, and, you know, what was being built was truly incredible. And then fast forward a couple of years later, your phone rings or, or your email pings and, and it's somebody from Columbus sort of outreach and, and they're looking for a, a new leader and, you know, I, we we had to have another podcast, which is the history of Pelotonia, and part of it is the recruitment of you. But I'm curious what it's like from your perspective of watching this organization grow and grow and grow, and and seeing it from afar, and now all of a sudden the opportunity gets put in front of you to to move your family up here. And, and yeah, it was join. it was kind of surreal. I mean, I I had gotten to know Mike Caligiuri, who was the CEO of the James for for a long time, and he and I had worked together on a lot of projects and. Uh, I'll never forget. I, I I landed in Austin, Texas, on a Southwest Airlines airplane, and there was no Wi-Fi. And I landed. I turned my phone on, and there was a text from Mike, and he said, "Call me." And so as I got my bag down, I called him. I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Hey," he said, "Do you have time for lunch sometime soon?" And it was a Tuesday, and I said, "Sure." And he said, "How about Friday?" And I said, "This Friday?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll come to Austin." And so we had lunch on Friday, and it was Mike Caligiuri, Mike Eicher, and Cindy Hilsheimer. And they flew down to Austin, and we had a long lunch. And I went home, and I said to my wife, I said, they asked me to consider moving to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and she goes, oh, I didn't realize that was what the lunch was about. Um, I said, I didn't either. But it was just interesting to hear them talk about the success and then also the community and why they thought it had been successful. And the more they talked about how engaged the community was, the more interesting it became. Yeah, so your first ride would have been 2015? Correct. Here. So what do you remember about the 2015 ride? And obviously you were part of the planning and, and everything that leads up to that, but you know, the, the ride's a pretty magical weekend and sort of being you know, in your position, curious, what that first ride was like for you. I remember realizing very quickly that the team at Pelotonia was phenomenal. And I remember realizing that clearly I was not hired to help with logistics or planning <laughs> of a massive event because they did such a great job of that already. So, so that was one. And then the, the main memory I have is uh, from riding. And, and everybody talks about Granville and riding through Granville, and, and, and I remember that uh, aspect of it, but also just the people I met along the way. When I think about sort of your, your upbringing, sort of in this planned community where, you know, it was really wildly unique, you know, and you didn't really realize it at the time, and then, you know, sort of really instilling what community means 
to you, and then you go through this cancer experience in your early 20s. You get to be a part of, you know, the growth of one of the largest cancer nonprofits ever. Um, and you sit here today at Pelotonia, and, and we get to hear you say all the time, you've never been more excited for anything. I'm curious, just what's, where's your head at, and what, like, what is it that gives you that fuel and that excitement for, for where we're going? You know, organizationally, what I would say is, you know, this is our 13th year. And so in the scheme of growth, we're still pretty young. And yet we've had tremendous growth and we've gone through some challenges, bumps in the road, pandemic and non-pandemic related. And we've made it through with unlimited opportunity in front of us. And now an incredible team and infrastructure to go seize these opportunities. We have unlimited growth potential. That's why I'm excited because we now have the right goals for our five-year sort of horizon. We've got the right team and now it's on us to execute. And so who wouldn't want that chance? I think personally, it is hard. I mean, I think about it a lot. You know, people that are no longer here and I feel in some ways a, a sense of responsibility to keep going. And I also feel like we have to constantly remember how fortunate we are to be here with the opportunity to literally save and change people's lives. Pelotonia is about the community and the stories and the platform that they have developed and we're just stewards in some ways. And so I'm continually inspired by your leadership and also by the community at large. And that's what's going to fuel us towards our audacious goals. Thanks to Doug for taking the time to share his story for this episode of the One Goal Podcast. We're constantly inspired and challenged by his leadership at Pelotonia. See the video of the full interview with Doug by clicking the link in the show notes. We also want to thank the many other members of our community who have so bravely shared their stories. Please subscribe and share this series with friends and family as this will undoubtedly inspire them to achieve what seems unachievable. All of this is made possible by our major funding partners the American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the L Brands Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. This has been One Goal, a storytelling podcast from Pelotonia. I'm your host, cancer survivor and COO of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Interview and production scheduling by our marketing and communications duo, Emily Smith and Gabby Blauer. One Goal is carefully crafted and produced at the studios of Wessler Media by Vince Tornero. Mastering by Joey Gerwin at Orange Udio. Special thank you to all of our guests for being willing to share their inspiring journeys for this podcast. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe so you can get seasons one and two, as well as future episodes. If you want to learn more about the Pelotonia community and how you can make an impact on cancer research, see the link in the show notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.